While we are still in our series in Colossians, we have also been, as a part of that series, looking at the creeds. Uh, We are a creedal community. We hold to the creeds as foundational to our faith, as a foundational part of what Christianity believes and professes, not just here, not just in this city, but around the world. Um, that I have walked into churches in other countries where I do not speak English, and yet when they begin to recite the creed, I recognize it. My heart swells because I say yes and amen. So this morning, we're going to look at the person of the Holy Spirit uh, as it's spoken about in the creeds. And I'm taking particularly the Nicene Creed this morning, um, and I do that for a specific reason, but I'm going to look at um, just sort of a little bit of the history and the person that Scripture describes and the attributes of the Spirit. We often focus on the gifts of the Spirit. We've done that in our shorts before, but we have a short that's coming up called The Practice of the Presence of God, which is taken from a 16th century monk's writings, his letters, where he talks about what it is to practice being in the presence of God, being aware of the Holy Spirit and moving in the Spirit. And I'm excited for this because I tend to get into the practice of my everyday, and it's not doesn't feel particularly sacred. We know that it is, but it's sometimes hard to be present and aware of the sacred. And so, Part of what we practice as a community in our collective on a Sunday morning is engaging in what is sacred um, together. Part of your private practice, uh, whether it's a time of quiet, meditation, prayer, scripture reading, gathering with others in small group. Sometimes maybe you pull your guitar off the wall. I did that this week. It had been a very, very long time. But whatever it is, it's It's that moment where you set aside and you acknowledge and say, I was made for more than just getting through my day. And that call of deeper to deeper is something that I want to be able to sit with for a moment. And so how do we expand that practice? Do we just add on or is there more that we can engage as far as just the deeper just the deeper, in the car, at the sink. And so we're going to talk a little bit about the Spirit this morning, the person of the Spirit, the idea that actually engaging more isn't reliant on us doing more. Engaging is often a growing awareness or a remembering, and we'll get to that. This would be a good morning if you're not a note taker, um, but you think maybe like you might have some good questions that you might want to jot down. This would be a good morning um, to jot down some questions. We're going to have a time right at the end of reflection, and these are also questions that you can take back to your small group this week, um, and you can pick up the conversation there. But this morning, as we look at the Nicene Creed, uh, I'm going to give us just a little bit of history on that. The Nicene Creed was written in 325 
Um, there was a gathering in Nicaea that was called by Emperor Constantine. Nicaea is now in modern-day Turkey, uh, and it's right on a large lake about two hours' drive from Istanbul, which would have been Constantinople at the time, would have been considered the capital of the East and um, extremely powerful. And Constantine was looking for a streamlining of Christian doctrine um, because the church collective had, been, had become the church of the state. And while we identify that some of that is problematic, what was good about it was it gave an opportunity for gatherings where there could be discussion around what is considered orthodox Christianity based in our understanding of the last 325 years and what is considered heresy. And so there were heresies that were starting to rise. I talked a little bit about this in my last sermon. One of those heresies was, oh, we're all good with babies making noises. It is not a problem. Um, one of those heresies was the idea that Jesus did not physically resurrect that he just spiritually resurrected and that we wouldn't have any physical resurrection, that we would just have a spiritual resurrection. Um, another heresy was the idea that Jesus wasn't really God incarnate, God made manifest, that Jesus was just a really good human being. So as these heresies were starting to float around, there was a need to identify what do we consider orthodox. And so the Nicene Creed, we had the Apostles' Creed already, but the Nicene Creed, the language is different. And it's different because it specifically identifies what became the doctrine of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So the Nicene Creed was written in 325, and then it was amended in 381 to clarify, to clarify the importance of the person of Holy Spirit. Now, in a Judeo-Christian tradition, we can say, well, yeah, we've got Genesis 1. The Spirit of God was hovering over the water, right? But the Jewish idea of Holy Spirit is different. There's no personhood. And so part of what was being understood for the early church was, how is this actually different? It is different. This isn't just a Jewish concept of the force or breath of God. This is a person. What does that mean? In the Nicene Creed, it begins, for those of you who may not be familiar, we believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, one in being with the Father. Through him all things were made, for men and for our salvation. He came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he was born of the Virgin Mary and became man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered, died, and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in fulfillment of the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. Side note, real quick, the man is not excluding women, it's excluding demons, just for clarity. 
there was a rise in theology that said demons would also be redeemed. And at that point, they were like, no, we don't think so. There's more debate about that in the current church, actually. However, in that particular moment, it was not an exclusion of women. It was a generic men as in mankind because this rising theology that maybe demons would be redeemed as well. That's an interesting conversation to get into. But third stanza is the one we're going to focus on, and we actually have a slide for it. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, the person of the Holy Spirit, not just a force that emanates from God, the giver of life. When it says that the Spirit of God was hovering over the water in Genesis 1, the was is a feminine verb. So while they identify here a he, it's not entirely clear because God is not he or she. And the Spirit of God is not identified actually as he or she. This was just the language that they had at the time for personhood, full personhood, 300, you know, 325. Full personhood meant a he. And so that he is important, but we also want to identify that in the language, this is not a he or a she. But the Spirit of God, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. Holy Spirit. Here at New Community, we sometimes will say the Holy Spirit, and we will sometimes say Holy Spirit. I don't know if you've noticed that. Um, it's intentional, it's not accidental. We're not into just dropping our thes for no reason. We typically refer to the Holy Spirit because we are referencing that from the creeds we draw an identifier as God, the Father, God, the Son, and God, the Holy Spirit. So we say the Holy Spirit. And if you see God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, those are references to the acknowledgement of place that they hold out of the creeds in our traditional orthodoxy. Yahweh is how we often name God, who cannot be named, but who can be identified also as Yahweh. Jesus is who we know the Son to be by name. And so when it comes to naming the Holy Spirit, it sometimes feels like we're not identifying personhood because we're saying, well, we've got Yahweh, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit of God. No, just the Holy Spirit. So we've gotten into the habit of regularly saying Holy Spirit because we want to be able to identify this is a person. Why is that important? 
When we talk about the person of Holy Spirit, we're talking about the presence and the essence of God made manifest and revealed to us now. And that sounds strange, but when you think about it, Scripture identifies a Jesus that we seek to follow, but none of us were there. If you were, we need to get coffee. But to my knowledge, none of us were there. We follow the teachings of Jesus. We seek to emulate the life of Jesus. We understand that Jesus brought the kingdom, and that's a kingdom that we want to be a part of making manifest. But we weren't there. It was Jesus who said, I'm going away, and I'm sending the Spirit. And the Spirit is the one who will lead you, who will make manifest to you the wisdom of the kingdom. And so we live in the age of the Spirit, the way that the disciples lived in the age of Jesus. The way that the disciples were born into a particular moment, a particular time, as was Jesus. Jesus couldn't flex the moment that he was born into. He had a particular family, came from a particular region, which would have given him a particular accent. He was identified as Jewish, living in an occupied nation, and working within the parameters of his time and his moment. And so did all of his disciples. So even in our moment, we can sometimes look back at the disciples, at their response to things, and we can say, oh, good grief. Like, come on, guys. But we have the perspective of the ages They did not. They were just in their moment. But Jesus makes it clear in John and again in other places where he talks about those who will come after who never knew me, but they will know the Spirit and they will be guided into all wisdom. That's us. That's us. As we blessed Brit and sent her off this morning, I was thinking about the gift that she has brought to Kids Come of exploring with curiosity and wonder things in Scripture that we've just been told that we try to take for granted, but sometimes can't. Sometimes it troubles us. Sometimes we can't figure it out. We can't get to the bottom of it. And Britt has introduced to the kids an idea that I have come back to again and again and again, and that is we want to be able to trust God. We want to be able to trust Jesus. As followers, we want to trust. And yet, it's hard to trust when our idea of God is incomplete. It's hard to trust when our idea of Jesus feels incomplete. It needs to not just be theoretical. It needs to not just be theology, and I love theology, but it needs to be something that we can explore as a person in our everyday moments. 
And so when we ask ourselves, what would it have been like for the disciples to be in the presence of Jesus? What about when they got it wrong, Peter, right? Good grief. And yet, there's also something beautiful about that hum- human exchange. They woke up with Jesus. They ate meals with Jesus. Jesus had to excuse himself to go to the bathroom. And the disciples were like, yeah, sure, no problem. We'll just walk away, right? They were living life with Jesus so that everything theoretical that we have now gleaned from Scripture, they were layering the theoretical stuff over their everyday, all-day moments that were super practical. Kids who had flus, mothers-in-law who got sick, they were laying their theology over relationship. So what do we do? We take the relationship that's offered to us through Holy Spirit, and we're like, oh, I'm going to work out my theology on this one. I don't know what I think, and it makes me very uncomfortable. So we resort to or tend towards, I'm going to work this out in my head, and then I'm going to bring that to my relationship to God, which is through Holy Spirit. Mm, That gets awkward because there's a lot of theology to work out there, a lot of different perspectives, a lot of different takes. So how do we do this? Nothing has changed. Those who chose to follow Jesus had to live with a everyday reality, which included when Jesus just kind of blew things up by introducing the kingdom right into a common moment. Hi, let's bust open a roof. Let's lower a person. He's going to get up and walk out of here, and everybody's going to be really upset about it. They had to live with that. They had to deal with that reality. And very often, we find that we don't have to deal with a lot of discomfort around something that the Holy Spirit does because we don't want to. So the discomfort often comes in other places instead. Pain that we're carrying. Dysfunction that we are trying not to emulate with our kids. Hurts and traumas that have come from the church, that have come from people who profess to be Christian. And we have no idea what to do with it except to try to apply good practice, good theology, and we're really not comfortable with what the Holy Spirit might do if the Holy Spirit were to come in and, like, bust open the roof and, like, just start to do stuff. But this is how the disciples lived. How are we any different in how we live It just looks a little bit different. For each one of us, we were sealed with the Spirit. Ephesians 1, 13, 14 says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance. All of the goodness of the kingdom is our inheritance. From that moment of initial trusting, even just the fraction of it, the fraction of it, the mustard seed, that tiny little bit, 
became all of the possibility of the kingdom made manifest inside of you. Now, we can turn that into really tight parameters about how you should manifest the Spirit of God. But as I see in Scripture, the Spirit of God is made manifest in any number of different ways and not designed to make you uncomfortable, designed to set you free. We journey with the Spirit through our everyday. What does that look like? I thought of the Pharisees and I thought of Nicodemus. I thought of that idea of relationship. When you've really settled in with theology, you know you've got the disciples, but they weren't theologians. We all, coming from Scripture and having been trained up, carry elements of theology inside of us, knowledge that we lean into. The disciples, they had good knowledge that they had been taught being raised in a Jewish community, and they had good scripture. But they were wholly unprepared for how Messiah, when Messiah showed up, was going to bust all of that up. The Pharisees were the ones who were going to get Jesus to fit into their box. And Jesus said, yeah, no, that is not going to happen. So one of them came to Jesus at night. And instead of saying, hey, you have to be this thing, and you have to be this thing, and you have to be this thing, or I cannot believe you're the Son of God. Instead, with curiosity, asked the questions. Was allowing the wonder to surface. Okay, so how is somebody born again? You can't re-enter your mother's womb. How does this look? Nicodemus, who I have deep respect for, did not leave his knowledge, his understanding at the door. He brought it to Jesus. And Jesus said, yes, let's engage this together. That is true of our life now as we walk. We don't leave things at the door. We bring our big questions. We bring our big doubts. We bring our big ideas. And we engage the person of Holy Spirit with those big ideas so that it becomes an exchange a reality that we live and breathe into. It's hard. There are many times when I would rather err on the side of the Pharisees, take what I know, and not have everything messed up. I'd rather take what I know and not have everything shaken up. I'd rather stick with the pain that I carry, then find out what I look like on the other side of it with a new reality of who God is. What is that going to ask of me? 
What is it going to turn over inside of me? How painful is that going to be? What do I have to change about my understanding of Scripture and the theology that I have accepted that seems really orthodox to me? I think most of us in this room have had some form of that experience. I know that I have. The only thing that was more terrifying than meeting God at the kitchen sink and hearing the Holy Spirit in my ear say, you're going to have to let this go, and it doesn't matter who doesn't follow you into it. I have new things for you, and the cost of holding on to it is going to be too, too high. And I did. I had to let it go. And yes, my theology has changed And there are people in my family who do not get that. And it has been painful because it's unlocked other things that I didn't want to see about myself, about ideas that I had that I was raised with. And it has caused me to have to grow and mature and not make everybody else change and come to the same conclusions. And yet, what else could I do? I could sit back and I could say, no, thank you. I'm going to stay really comfortable right here with what I know and what I can control. The only other time that I've encountered anything as hard as that moment was when in college I felt the Spirit withdraw. Now, I don't know what your theology says. I'll be honest, I don't know what my theology says. But there was a time when I was in college where I just, for a season, didn't feel any of it. Don't feel it. Don't think this can be true. It's all too big, too crazy. This whole God thing, this whole Jesus thing, And the moving of the Spirit, you know what? Maybe it's just easier to do life. Just the everyday. And it kind of was. Except that everything had lost, like, that tinge of what makes it really wonderful. that thing that says, oh, but, but there's more, was gone. And it got really bleak really quickly, and I can still remember riding the underground in London. That's where I was. And thinking, you know what? This is going to end me if I stay here. I have to find a new way forward. I've got to do something else. And a friend had invited me to a worship service that was happening at St. Paul's Cathedral by a young worship leader. And I thought, I'll go along and it'll be a bunch of people singing songs that right now I have no idea if I can even agree with. And I went in and yeah, I stood in the back and I was like, "Mm -mm, nope, I'm not feeling it. I'm not here for this. And then the guy gets up to talk, and he's like, right, we're looking at the Ten Commandments. And I was like, 
oh yeah, no, I'm done. <laughs> I was like, to this day, I can't tell you what he said. I don't know. I don't remember that part. There was nothing that like generated something super powerful inside of me that was like, this is truth. He did. He started looking at the Ten Commandments, and it was multiple days, and I went along every night. And two things happened. Something inside of me started to light up again, and I kept running into friends. People who were like me. And I was like, oh, wait a second. I know you. Yeah. Yeah. You play clubs on a Friday night. You love Jesus, and you're figuring it out. Okay. I came back to, and this is what I call it, a remembering. Brother Lawrence of the resurrection in the 1600s was a monk living in Paris. He had dedicated his life to God, having fought in a number of wars when he was young. He was quite lame, and so he was given the role of the kitchen duty. And he talked about the God who meets him among the pots and pans. And this is something that Brother Lawrence wrote. We don't know who to, but we think that she was probably a very prominent um, Catholic, possibly prioress. Um, and they communicated back and forth, but this is something that he wrote that always sticks with me. I cannot imagine how religious persons can live satisfied without the practice of the presence of God. For my part, I keep myself retired with him in the depth of center of my soul as much as I can. And while I am so with him, I fear nothing, but the least turning from him is insupportable. That practice of the presence of God is the practice of an awareness of Holy Spirit. Among the pots and pans, there is a depth of center of our soul that never goes away, that never changes. But we have a tough relationship with it. And what Brother Lawrence identified was that in all of the trauma that he had experienced, all of the physical pain that he carried for all of his life, the isolation and the loss, the one thing he could not do that was unsupportable to him was to turn away from the presence of God. From John 14, Jesus said, If you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him. For he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I'm in my Father, and you are in me. All this I've spoken while still with you, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. I'm going to finish with this. An encouragement to remember. 
A number of years ago, I was in the wine country with my family in Northern California, which is where a bunch of them reside. And it was a Sunday afternoon in late summer, right about this time, and we had decided that we would go wine tasting, which is fun for the grown-ups, but it's also really fun for the kids because a lot of wineries cater to having kids not come into the winery necessarily, but the grounds are really beautiful. So you pack a lunch after church, and you head out, and you go in, and some of the adults will do some wine tasting, and you buy a bottle, and then you sit out on the grounds, and the kids run around. And there are all kinds of fun hedgerows and mazes and all sorts of beautiful things. But in the late summer, early fall, it is magical. So I was there with my niece, who was just about the same age as my daughter, who actually is turning three today. And my niece was getting restless. And so I thought, we'll step out and we'll just go wander around. And so we came around all of these hedges that were high and big. And we turned a corner, and this is what lay before us. No joke, that's what it looked like. And my niece was just a couple of steps ahead of me, this little person, and the sun is starting to get really golden towards the end of the afternoon. And my niece stepped out, looked at it. She raised both hands in the air, wrapped her arms around and my heart remembered. I watched her respond, and her response was so immediate, so spontaneous, that my heart remembered. I've gotten so used to filtering everything through my head that my heart has to wait on my head to, like, figure it out before it can be wonderful. And my three-year-old niece was like, there it is. It's gorgeous. We can trust the person of the Holy Spirit. Whatever hurts you carry, whatever theologies you have been told, the Holy Spirit is a person who is trustworthy. My encouragement to us today is that the Spirit has been sent to us to be present with us, to reveal truth to us, and we need not be afraid. Something that I love about our community is that we rely on a collective discernment for our big decisions. We trust that the Spirit is moving among us and between us to help us collectively discern what comes next. My encouragement is that we press into this discernment individually in the practice of the presence of God. Let us practice our listening let us practice a silence that is so full of the, the Spirit that it doesn't even feel like silence. Let us practice being patient and gentle with ourselves, trusting that we may physically encounter a God who seeks us, desires to heal us, and desires to move in power among us and through us. So here's my question for you. This is something for you to take back. We won't reflect on it too much this morning because we're a little out of time. But what does it look like for you to interact with the Holy Spirit? It's okay. What is the Holy Spirit helping you to discover 
in this season of your life? And how can you discern and participate in what Holy Spirit is doing? This is something for each of us to consider. Think about taking it back to your small group. I'm going to pray for us. Holy Spirit, we thank you for the gift of your presence that you make manifest to us your gifts of love and joy, of peace and patience, of goodness and kindness and faithfulness and gentleness and the gift of self-control. For each one of us here, we have a different relationship, the same way that all of the disciples had a different relationship with Jesus. We have a different relationship with you. And I would just ask, would you help each one here to remember the delight of that awareness of you, whether it comes through nature, laughing with a child, the words of a friend, reading something, however it comes, would you remind each one of us that it's you? And would we be willing to cultivate when that happens a moment of identifying again, yes, I hear you. And would we practice being present with you? Help us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.